Welcome to the Daily Bite. I'm your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Today, let us look at Psalm number 60. To the choir master, according to Shushan Aduth, a miktam of David, for instruction. When he strove with Aram Naharim and with Aram Zoba, and when Joab on his return struck down 12,000 of Edom in the Valley of Salt. O God, you have rejected us. Broken our defenses, you have been angry. O restore us. You have made the land to quake, you have torn it open. Repair its breaches, for it totters. You have made your people see hard things. You have given us wine to drink that made us stagger. You have set up a banner for those who fear you, that they may flee to it from the bow. Salah, that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand, and answer us. God has spoken in his holiness. With exultation I will divide up Shechem and portion out the vale of Sukkoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah is my scepter. Moab is my washbasin. Upon Edom I cast my shoe. Over Philistia I shout in triumph. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go forth, O God, with our armies. O grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. This is the word of the Lord. Shushan Aduth continues our pattern in the opening of what seems to be maybe a tune or some kind of a, a notation like it to the choir master for how to sing this particular psalm. Miktam, Miktam, this is the last of them, number 16 and then 56 to 60. We don't get any more on the remaining 90 psalms. This one is to teach. It is meant to be catechetical, which may seem a bit strange when you actually look at what it says. Maybe we'll come back to that. Contextually, this occurred when David fought with Aram Naharim and Aram Zoba, and Joab on the return struck down 12,000 of Edom in the Valley of Salt. It's possible, as David was involved in a lot of conflict in his years, it's possible that this is a reference to a battle that was not recorded, if it's recorded. We're probably looking here at 2 Samuel chapter 8. The thing to keep in mind is the idea of Aram Naharim. That that language jumped out at me just briefly. When I looked it up, it doesn't show up anywhere else in Scripture. However, Aram Naharim, the Hebrew, does show up again. It shows up back in Genesis chapter 24, verse 10, when Abraham takes his servant makes him promise that he will go back to the land of his family to find a wife for his son Isaac. The servant arises and he goes to what in most English Bibles will say is Mesopotamia. 
But in the Hebrew, it's actually this same phrase. It's Aram Naharim, which literally means Aram of rivers. Naharim, Nahar is a river, plural. It's a reference to Mesopotamia, which is the region stretching all the way from the Persian Gulf on the southeast side, all the way up past the Mediterranean Sea, really, on the on the northwestern side of it. And so the the region of what is Haran, where Abraham's family had come from before, well, Abraham moved to the Promised Land from there. Originally, he was over more towards the Persian, Persian Gulf, but Haran a spot where he lived many years, where his father would live and die. That's part of Aram Naharim. So Haran is what we would think of as part of Syria. That gives us a little bit more context then as we take a look at Second Samuel chapter 8 as a possibility that David has defeated Moab. And then verse 3, he defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. So notice Aram Zobah, here in this introduction, went to restore his power at the river Euphrates, which would be up in Mesopotamia, took with him, took from him 1,700 horsemen, 20,000 foot soldiers. David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. So the connection I'm making is that perhaps Aram Naharim is a reference to the Syrians that are right here in 2 Samuel 8. That fits. What doesn't fit then is the last bit that Joab struck down 12,000 men of Edom in the Valley of Salt. When you get to the end of 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 13, David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. So that 12,000 by Joab is not mentioned, whereas a larger number by David is mentioned. So it could be this account that is in mind, that Joab is responsible for some of the 18,000 as the commander under David. It could, again, though, be a separate account. It's hard to say that with certainty. What makes it the least likely, if there's anything that fights against it being 2 Samuel 8, is that at the end of 2 Samuel 8, things seem to be going pretty well. Yahweh gave victory to David wherever he went. And then you get verse 15, So David reigned over all of Israel and administered justice and equity to his people. Whereas here, when we get this psalm, what's going on? David is indicating that the Lord has broken Israel. And that's a really hard statement. This is a really hard psalm because of it, because it's going to point us to things that as Christians in the New Testament era, we just don't like to consider. Or maybe that's not even fair. Maybe just as Christians in the American context that we find ourselves in, we don't like, we don't like to think of the Lord this way. But we start, God, you have rejected us. Broken our defenses. You have been angry, O restore us. The idea that God does both, that he breaks down and he builds up. I think that's the part that our, our American Christian mindset is opposed to. But it's true. It is the Lord. It is who he is. Here from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 39, as Yahweh speaks, he says, See now that I, even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill 
and I make alive. I wound, and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Strong words that the Lord speaks, and again, not words that we like to hear, that the Lord wounds and he heals. We just want to hear about his healing. We don't want to hear about him killing. We want to hear about him making alive. But he is God. And he brings both law and gospel. He brings both mercy and wrath. He brings both salvation and judgment. In order to be a just God, there is also judgment. In order to be a holy God, sin cannot be tolerated. And so the Lord the Lord punishes. So what exactly it is, again, contextually here, David has going on? I don't know. It doesn't seem fitting with the Second Samuel 8 passage, although that's what the introduction most fits. But for Israel to have somehow been weakened at that moment and to have felt rejected by the Lord that he was not fighting for them, which is the picture, right? Verse 10, you do not go forth, O God, with our armies. They feel abandoned. What's happened? Hard to say. But this is a conversation we can have as a family. When evil things happen, or when we suffer, is it because God is weak? And the answer to that question is no. And sometimes the suffering that we endure is actually from God. Take, for example, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. It is true that the Lord will bring discipline upon us in order to strengthen our faith. The Lord will bring small judgment, not the like dead and damned kind of judgment, but a smaller judgment into our lives in order to refine us as a a smith would refine gold in the fire. The Lord tests our faith. He strengthens us through these things. It's hard hard to point fingers. It's hard to know always what's going on. That's the hidden will of God, and we don't want to terribly investigate it. It doesn't do us much good. But when we see evil or when we suffer, rather than throwing blame, we simply throw ourselves to the Lord. We cast ourselves into the Lord's care, which is essentially what we see David do with this psalm. God is angry. God has, he's crippled our defenses. He's made it so that we're torn open. What will happen? And what does David do? Restore us. Repair our breaches. You have set up a banner for those who fear you that we may flee to it and, and from the bow. That your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer us. So whereas David believes that the Lord has somehow weakened him, he sees this as an opportunity not to assault God with complaint, but instead to humbly go before his Lord and acknowledge that, yes, this has happened. Help us. Restore us. David's faith is being tested by fire and is proving genuine, faithful. He prays to God for help. 
May we do the same in times of trial. May we do the same. Give salvation by your right hand and answer us. The right hand is military language here that, generally speaking, everybody in that era was right-handed. Rare, 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 rare was a lefty. And so your sword hand is your right hand, the hand that you would fight with. Fight for us. Save us, fight for us. And we know that Jesus has. That he died on the cross to defeat sin, death, and the devil for us. And he has. That while we may be tested, we are yet refined. While we may go through trial, the Lord brings us through. Because we are his. In Christ we are his. Now, God's speech here in verse 6 through 8 doesn't seem, at least that I could find, to have an Old Testament quotation behind it. You might expect it to have come out of the, the Pentateuch, the first five books, for example. So what's going on here? We have, with exultation, I will divide up Shechem, portion out the veil of Sukkoth. Shechem and Sukkoth are fairly centrally located in Israel. Gilead is mine. Gilead is the land just east of the Jordan River. Manasseh is mine. Manasseh has maybe the most territory of the 12 tribes of Israel. They've got a giant chunk on the west of the Jordan and a giant chunk over on the east of the Jordan too because they had a half-tribe that stayed behind. Ephraim is my helmet. Ephraim is north of where Judah would be on the map. It protects when you think of wearing your helmet, it protects your head. Judah is the scepter. It is the place where God will rule from Jerusalem, the holy city. And so Ephraim is a protection, a buffer for Judah from the enemy who would come from the north. Although eventually that enemy would be from within, as Israel will divide into the northern and southern kingdoms. So God owns all of this. He will divide up the land. He will give it to his people. And Moab is his washbasin. Moab is east of the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea, so you'd have to cross the Jordan River and turn south. And Edom, I cast my shoe, Edom is just south of the Salt Sea. Over Philistia I shout in triumph, that's the enemy to the west, between Judah and the Mediterranean Sea. A major enemy that David has fought uh, throughout his time as, well, even before he was king, but even as king. So the Lord controls even these as enemies. To use Moab as a wash basin, you know, to wash his hands, right? Um, not exactly speaking high of Moab. To use Edom as a place to cast his shoe seems like a picture of shame, humility, that he's treating Edom like a footrest because he's conquered them. And Philistia he shouts in triumph over because he's defeated them. The Lord is victorious against his enemies. Who will bring me? So this is the end of the Lord's speech. Now back to David. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Jerusalem. Who will lead me to Edom, the enemy to the south? Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go forth, O God, with our armies. So we're back to where we started with the psalm, that David is recognizing some kind of a brokenness that has occurred, and he's praying to God to overturn it. Grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. That's important to recognize. Man's salvation is empty. Okay, David could save Joab, or David could save the people of Israel, but for what? For a season? 
couple years, maybe? There would always be another enemy. The salvation of man doesn't work. This is the, the trick of the social justice movement, the devil's trick that makes you think it sounds good. On paper, social justice sounds good, typically. But when we recognize that it's a distraction, it serves to sever from the sharing and proclamation of the gospel. The idea that if I save my neighbor from this oppression, there's nothing wrong with doing that. But they will be oppressed by something else. This is why Jesus did not come to be a social justice king. He came to save us from the true oppressor of sin and death and the devil. Our slavery to sin, our slavery to the enemy. This is the big deal. Man's salvation does not last. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. So David, even though he's recognizing that at the moment things are not good, that the Lord has has done this, he has abandoned them to this moment to suffer. It's a vulnerability. But he still confidently declares that the Lord is with him, that the Lord will defeat his enemies. And this is most certainly true. All right, a couple closing thoughts here. Another family conversation, grant us help against the foe, is another great spot to simply ask your kids, how does God do this? How does he help us against the foe? So first you have to recognize the foe. The main foe, again, sin, death, and the devil. What did God do? Jesus died on the cross to forgive our sin. He rose from the grave to defeat death for us. And in doing both of those things, he's defeated the devil. The devil has no more power over us. Thanks be to God. We could also point to earthly enemies. How does the Lord help us against the foe? Well, Jesus teaches us to love them, to serve them, to care for them. And we know that the Lord has us. So even if they kill us, even if they do destroy us, we are forever with our King. The other thing I wanted to comment on before we wrapped up, you do not go forth, O God, with our armies. As I read it, it reminded me of the Lord's Prayer. It's kind of the opposite, recognizing that at the moment God is not fighting for them. But this is something we pray in the Lord's Prayer. When we pray, lead us not into temptation, we are praying that the Lord would not do this. We are praying that the Lord would not abandon us. Where do our temptations come from? Our temptations come from our own sinful nature. They come from the world around us, and they come from the devil. For the Lord to lead us not into temptation is us praying that the Lord would not join with our enemies and also become one of those tempting us. It is hard enough. If the Lord were to turn against us, where could we possibly go? Hmm. You have the words of eternal life. Lord, to whom shall we go? The Lord fights for us. As David confidently ends this psalm, so we recognize also. Deliver us from evil, O Lord. Deliver us from the evil one. We know that you have in Christ.